And I thought, well, it would be great to go to university. The trouble was I left school at 15, so I didn't have O-levels and A-levels. And so there was a constraint. I had to be able to study for them without going back to school. So that pretty much ruled out hard sciences. And I thought, well, I'd like to do a degree in philosophy, but I don't see that I could get a job as a result of that. But in psychology, I thought, well, I could become a clinical psychologist. I might study ergonomics. I might become uh, somebody who advises ad agencies. There might be an interesting job there. So I decided I would study, try to study psychology. Welcome back to Cognitive Evolution. I'm Cody Calmers, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. My guest today is Philip Johnson Layard. He is a professor emeritus at Princeton University, and he is undoubtedly one of the most influential cognitive scientists of all time, best known perhaps for his development of the idea of mental models. Uh, but I, I will say, though, if you if you really want to get a sense of how eminent he is, uh, you don't have to look any further than his email address. You can find him at Phil at Princeton. Um, that's, uh, you know, not Phil at psych.princeton. It's, it's literally, he is the Phil at Princeton University. So it was a huge honor to talk to him for this conversation, as he's long been one of my personal favorite cognitive scientists. I'd say my favorite paper of his is a lesser-known article from 2002 called How Jazz Musicians Improvise. It's part of a long-standing interest of his in understanding how our minds create complex, meaningful sequences, in this case, strings of notes, on on the go. And uh, so Phil, he didn't start off planning to become an academic. He left school at age 15. And, And before he got on the academic track, he worked as a jazz pianist. So in this conversation, um, I think this is a very important aspect of his development, we go deep into his background as a musician and how those experiences influenced his ideas about the mind and what he came to do later on. We also talk about his background working miscellaneous jobs for 10 years before starting university, marching in protests that were led by Bertrand Russell, the mentorship of the great Peter Wason. Phil's first encounters with cognitive science, which uh, include the very first ever meeting of the Cognitive Science Society. We talk about his relationship with George Miller, the genesis of his idea of, of, of mental models, and how Phil's understanding of mental models have changed over the past 40 years. And uh, we also talk at the end about what the question of, of how jazz musicians improvise can tell us about how the mind works. So if, if you do want to skip ahead to the main cognitive science bits, the, the development of his ideas, the, the you know, mentorship of Peter Wason, the historical perspectives on cognitive science, that happens around the 30-minute mark. So I, I personally think that Phil's background in a, as a musician is crucial for understanding the development of his ideas and, and where those sort of came from personally for him. But if that's not as much of interest to you, feel free to skip ahead. So... If you do enjoy this episode or have enjoyed any of my previous ones, I would really appreciate it if you give the show a five-star rating on iTunes. It actually helps a ton in bringing in new listeners. I would also really appreciate it if you subscribe to Cognitive Revolution through whichever platform you may be listening through now. And 
If you'd like to check out the rest of my work, which includes all of my writing and uh, a couple other podcasts, then you can check that out at my newsletter, which is uh, available at codycommerce.substack.com. So thank you for listening. And without any further ado, here is Phil Johnson Lee. So uh, the first question that I usually like to start with is, is where did you grow up? Well, it depends what counts as being grown up. <laughs> um, I first became aware of the world in Sheffield um, and lived there through World War II, including the Blitz there. And then between VE and VJ Day, my family moved to London. And so... Uh, in nine, by the time I was 10, I was living in a suburb in London. And I stayed there until I got into academia, basically. I mean, my, my first academic job was in London, but then I moved around a bit. And what did your, what did your parents do? What, were your, what was your family like? And, and did you have siblings? Uh, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Okay. So um, my mother was uh, what they call here a housemaker. She was a very smart woman and very self-sufficient and uh, really um, um, a rather extraordinary woman. Who, My father um, had been a musician, as had his father and so on, way back to about 1860, maybe even earlier, great-grandparents, etc., but he became an accountant and then he became a salesman and he worked for the National Cash Register Company. And uh, he was still working for them when he died at a relatively early age. What kind of musician? I have a brother. Okay. Yeah. I have a brother who is alive and well, eight years younger than me, and he lives in Portland, Oregon. Oh, nice. Um, uh, those are the only close relatives I have. I have various more remote cousins, you know, once removed, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, what were your kind of interests as a, as a child? What initially did you get drawn to? What's, uh, I don't know, what, yeah, what sparked your kind of uh, early joys and, and interests and, and excitement? Well, um, I went. I mentioned I went to a public school, Culford, which was a Methodist public school, but I left there at the age of 15. Uh, while I was there, I was really interested in two things, uh, playing rugby and cricket and uh, playing or learning to play modern jazz. Uh, the rest of the academic stuff, you know, I did a minimal amount of work not to look embarrassingly bad. Uh, that, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested to talk about the, the jazz stuff and we'll get sort of, we'll let that unfold as it, as it continues throughout your life. But I guess, um, what I'd like to know is, is there a time when you can sort of first remember getting really excited about an idea that there was some sort of abstract thing, uh, whether it was a book that you came across or an experience that really made you think or something like that was, was there a, a, like the first kind of idea that you held on to and were like, Hey, well, huh, I'm really, I'm fascinated. By yeah, this. yeah, there is. I, I heard quite a lot of music at school and I liked 
very much 20th century music. And I got intrigued by what makes chords dissonant. And I started to keep a large notebook and I started to systematically explore different sorts of chords um, and what seemed to make them dissonant. And I've still got that book. And uh, it, the idea really excited me. I spent a lot of time working on it at school, but of course I didn't solve it. But many, many years later, in fact, relatively recently, uh, I did propose a solution to it. So that's been one of the sort of background things. I didn't work on it for years and years and years, but I worked on, uh, a lot at school. Uh, that, and as I say, learning to play uh, modern jazz. I heard a, a British, as it happens, a, a, a recording by uh, a British uh, musician of modern jazz and improvising. George Shearing was his name, but he was resident in America by then. And I was bowled over by his solo, and I thought, this guy is just playing notes at random. So I went to the piano at school in the music practice room and just played notes at random. And of course, it didn't sound anything like George Shearing. So that was another thing that intrigued me. What was going on? All right. So I'm, I, <laughs> I, uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to take the bait. What, I, what, is your, what is your theory of what makes chords uh, dissonant? And is it, how does it differ from what makes intervals dissonant? Well, the two are related, and I mean, it, it's a long story, and I'm not going to tell, I mean, it's pub, this theory is published, so um, okay. people can track it down. Yeah, but I'll tell you, in essence, in essence, the first part of the story goes back to Helmholtz, the great uh, 19th century German scientist who worked on perception and physics, and he wrote a book on the sensations of tone. And, of course, he had no electronic devices, but he was a real genius. And he figured out something very important, and that is that when overtones are near to each other in frequency, they produce a rather unpleasant buzz. And people now understand the neurophysiology of this. And so his view was that a, a, a element of what makes for dissonance is indeed adjacent overtones. And I, that's correct, and that's part of the theory that I uh, wanted to propose. But Helmholtz realized something very important, and that is, it, as you listen to music, it uh, affects how you perceive dissonance. And he realized that what was dissonant uh, for people in the 17th century, after the birth of tonality in music, systematic tonality, is no longer considered dissonant, even in the 19th century. So culture matters and context matters. And that's the other component of uh, the theory. So uh, with uh, various colleagues, undergraduates, actually, uh, we we worked on this and did a study where we examined a very we examined all possible three-note chords. It's a very large number, and wow. four notes is impossible. And it looks as though this theory is on the right lines. It may turn out to be false, but uh, I don't know. I haven't seen any refutation of it yet, and we published it some years ago. That's so cool. 
I love that. Um, this is kind of, this is kind of an aside, but I've got this, you know, kind of go-to party question because this is the kind of person that I am uh, at a party, which is what is the greatest idea of all time? And uh, a lot of people, they put forward sort of, oh, well, you know, you have evolution by Darwin, you have, you know, calculus by Newton and Leibniz. But my own submission in answer to this question is uh, when you go back to Pythagoras and look at how he basically was the one who delineated the mathematics of the 12-tone chromatic scale that we use today in Western music, where he said, okay, well, if you have the same note uh, at, you know, uh, basically 2x the, the, the wavelength, uh, that's, 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 uh, an, that's an octave. That's the same note, very consonant. So that's a, a one-to-two ratio. Uh, and then, you know, go through and say, okay, well, here's the next consonant uh, pair. Here it's, you know, two to two to three and so on, all the way down to, you know, the tritone, the, the you know, devil's, devil's interval, sure. uh, and which is, you know, along with the, the minor ninth, the, um, you know, most sort of cognitively perceived as dissonant. And anyway, the reason I love this is because it, it articulates the connection between the objective world of math and ratios and those sort of things and the subjective world of the most, you know, humanistic products we have in music and our perception of them and all that sort of stuff. And so this area of, uh, because music, you can break down to such a mathematical degree and relate the, and map, you know, those, those mathematical equations onto what's happening in the brain, for example, like you're talking about neurophysiology and then have, you know, music be the, the, you know, sort of ultimate humanistic expression that it is. It's such a fascinating area to me. Well, it's certainly, I mean, the dissonance of chords is the oldest problem in cognitive science precisely because it was first examined by Pythagoras. And the only footnote I'd add to what you just said is that it turns out, as you will know, that if you actually tune instruments in a strict Pythagorean way, then uh, certain keys you can't play in without the music sounding horrible. Yeah. So uh, this is, you remember something, that the idea of making a kind of compromise, which actually violates the pure mathematical ratios, is what happened in music, uh, and which Bach's uh, celebrated in, in writing the, you know, the preludes and fugues in all possible chromatic keys. So it's the, it's, you're right, it's a, an interesting interface, but like many things, Pythagoras' idea was a little too beautiful to be true. Now, I know that physicists say, well, it can't be true unless it's beautiful, but uh, in cognitive science, it's not quite so simple. I guess the good news is that Pythagoras, for all his genius, did leave something for the rest of us to work on. So I'm glad his his theory, you know, 3,000 years ago, didn't, didn't fully solve everything. So I guess that, that, that there it is a positive there. Um, <laughs> but um, so, yeah, so you didn't, as far as I can tell, plan on going into academia from the beginning. It wasn't really a precedent that was set in your family. And uh, you actually started your university studies around 25 or something like that, later than, later than most That's people. Correct, so yeah. what were I you doing? For, yeah. Tell me about those intervening jobs. I worked for five years as a quantity surveyor, which I didn't really like, but I was moonlighting as a jazz musician in a, the Tony Hall quintet, a semi-pro group. 
And so after that, I refused to do my military service. And my wife and I, uh, you know, sat down in demonstrations with Bertrand Russell. I know somebody that you interviewed uh, earlier, Alan Badley, was also greatly influenced by Russell. So after uh, working uh, uh, as a hospital porter and in a bakery as alternatives to my military service, I thought, well, I really need to get an interesting job because I, I didn't find quantity surveying interesting. So I then made one of the few rational decisions of my life. I thought, what could I do to get an interesting job? And I thought, well, it would be great to go to university. The trouble was I left school at 15, so I didn't have O-levels and A-levels. And so there was a constraint. I had to be able to study for them without going back to school. So that pretty much ruled out hard sciences. And I thought, well, I'd like to do a degree in philosophy, but I don't see that I could get a job as a result of that. But in psychology, I thought, well, I could become a clinical psychologist. I might study ergonomics. I might become uh, somebody who advises ad agencies. There might be an interesting job there. So I decided I would study, try to study psychology. Did you ever meet Russell? I wrote to him and he replied, and I certainly sat down with him in demonstrations, but along with uh, several hundred other people. But I never uh, spoke to him, no. Were you reading his work at the time or were there, yeah, I guess that would have been before you were doing university. So were you were you engaged in kind of, I don't know, philosophical yes. discourse and ideas? Yeah, I worked for a time as a librarian, uh, Hendon, uh, public libraries and the you know, branch library and the chief of it said, would you like to write a, a, a little booklet on books on philosophy? So I had read a lot of philosophy. I'd read a lot of Russell. Um, and so I, yeah, I'd read a lot of philosophy. Um, and to this day, I mean, some, some of my closest friends are philosophers. Uh, so I, I like philosophy, but I prefer uh, doing experiments to test ideas. Well, you know what you would have done if you were really clever is you would have gotten a copy of uh, Bertrand Russell's History of Western Philosophy and, and take and done all of your you know summaries of, of books based off of that, and they will turn out you know a couple summaries a day by uh, by taking a, taking a page out of old old Bertrand summaries. I, I could have done that um, actually. <laughs> You notice my bookshelf when we were on video, and the, behind me there is indeed a copy of the uh, history of Western philosophy. Oh, yeah. I didn't make my list that way because I was interested in what was going on in sort of modern philosophy. Uh, so uh, I'm sure it influenced me. I read it and made uh, yeah. notes on it, etc. Um, and of course, I should say that when I went to university, I had no idea of becoming an academic. And you're right, I. I had nobody in my immediate family that went to university, so I knew nothing about it at all. I'm always drawn to, you know, people who go on to be eminent academics. I'm really drawn to the parts of their story where, you know, like you're saying, it, it, there was no pretense of, of, of academia and you were doing something that was ostensibly not very academic. So was there is there something that you think stuck with you from your time before 
you know, university doing these jobs that, you know, maybe other people who went on to do academic type stuff were not able to experience. Was there anything like that that, that comes to mind for you? Well, one thing I brought to academia was an ability to take exams. Because when I was a surveyor, I had to study in the evening to, to get uh, the exams of the Royal Institution of Surveyors. And I didn't like that very much. Uh, and so I learned the hard way about how to take exams. So that was useful to me. Uh, as for ideas, well, nothing that I haven't already mentioned. Music in particular was something that I was interested in. So I'd read Freud. Um, I, I, to prepare for my interview, I, um, I read some psychological works and I mentioned I was in a library and as a summer job, I worked at Hampstead Public Library which had a special collection, still does, I think, in uh, psychology and philosophy. So I, I, uh, I, I guess going to university at 25 is not so rare here in America, but it was rare in my day in England. And I, I guess I was rather better prepared for the interview, uh, the interviews uh, than many. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Uh, so before we get into your time at University College London and sort of your formal introduction to psychology and that sort of stuff, I do want to ask you about your, you know, burgeoning career as a jazz pianist at this time. So like how how good were you? How how was this like, was this something you were like, okay, maybe I can go out there and be a professional jazz pianist? Is that something you were thinking at the time? No, I never thought that. I don't think I was original enough. Uh, it was not something that... Um, so, and my father had been a professional musician. Um, and I, I, you know, when I was young, I didn't mind. We, the group I was in used to play uh, gigs in uh, art schools and things like that, and sometimes parties. So I played gigs at uh, all night parties, etc. And I thought, well, this is okay, because I'm young, but I, I couldn't see myself doing that as a full-time career. So I have a great admiration for jazz musicians that stick to playing jazz because it's not something you make a lot of money off. I wasn't interested in money, uh, but I didn't like the uh, the uncertainty and the unsocial hours. Who are your favorite jazz pianists? Well, I guess Bud Powell mm. and uh, Bill Evans, uh, yeah. Thelonious Monk, Horace Silver, yeah. Uh, those four are probably my favorites. Uh, so a little bit leaning more towards that bebop, you know, horizontal, maybe hard, hard bop, you know, like that sort of thing. Yeah. You have to remember that I first heard jazz in the, uh, uh, you know, around 1950, 1951. Uh, so, uh, and, you, you know, I greatly admire a lot of uh other jazz musicians, uh, obviously all the great players that started bebop, uh, Gillespie and uh, Charlie Parker, of course, and right through, I guess, until the present day. In fact, one of the things that I'm suffering from, um, with along with my wife and 
and uh, our grown-up children is not being able to go to jazz clubs at the moment. In fact, one of our favorite jazz clubs is closed permanently. Uh, so here in Manhattan, uh, they're hanging on by a thread. Uh, it's a shame. It's, it's, it's a total shame. It's mm-hmm. hard enough to be a jazz club during, you know, normal times, let alone pandemic. Oh my God, it's terrible. Um, yeah. Yeah. One, um, one jazz pianist, so my, my tastes are slightly different in that I much more prefer the blues infused kind of, um, uh, like jazz musicians around this time. So the people sort of out of the Art Tatum uh, and Oscar Peterson tradition. So you have like Gene Harris Benny Green, uh, Monty Alexander, that sort of stuff. A little bit later yeah, on. No, the... I, I like those. I like those guys too. And of course, Horace Silver has yeah. a very strong bluesy element in his playing. Yeah, similar to like Bobby uh, Timmons too. Yeah. Uh, oh. So one of my favorite groups uh, a little later uh, was the Jazz Messengers, Art Blakey's. Mm-hmm. Uh, with changed personnel, uh, and he was great at discovering uh, good musicians. Yeah. Uh, my, and my son and daughter, although they have wider tastes than I, they both like uh, jazz too, so that's fun. And as I said, we we, uh, we go, uh, or did before the uh, virus. Uh, back, in the, back in this era, did you ever see the Jazz Messengers or any of the big names like that? I, I I heard them only once, and that was in Cambridge. Um, they played in the, I think it was called the Cornhall, and the acoustics and amplification was absolutely appalling. It was yeah. a great disappointment. It, it kind of ruined it. Yeah. But it was good to see Blakey. I, uh, Blakey is the, the, uh, I, my favorite drummer, I guess. Yeah. I like Max Roach too, but I think Blakey swung more than anybody else I've ever heard. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, my God. Incredible. Um, okay, so let's let's put a pin in the jazz stuff for now. We'll come back to it sort of post, you know, cognitive science and something you've since you've written about. But how did you? So uh, um, you did your undergrad at UCL. How did your kind of initiation into psychology and psychological research begin? I was a participant in an experiment run by a man called Peter Wason. Um, Peter Wason was somebody who really sort of founded the modern investigations into human reasoning. And since I was interested in philosophy and since I'd read Russell and since I knew uh, and indeed studied at university uh, also logic, I thought it would be a good idea to investigate how human beings reason. So he agreed to advise me uh, uh, for my PhD, and I worked with him, and he was a, a great mentor. Incidentally, there's a, an excellent book by Ken Mangtolo, uh, which is a biography of uh, Peter Wason that came out last year. Oh, that's interesting. I'll have to look into that. I'm going to turn my video on here for a second. I just want to show you that I have this uh, beautiful... <laughs> Um, yes. Thinking and reasoning, you know, penguin modern psychology. Uh, I don't even know what what year it is, but it's you know, it's sixty eight, I think. Yes, sixty eight, exactly. Edited by uh, P. C. Uh, Wason and P. N. Johnson Laird, and uh, I found this a That's couple cool. years ago when I when I came to Oxford. I was just in a used bookstore, and it's a beautiful little copy. Uh, and that that's been on my shelf as like a you know sort of totem of 
uh, you know, good old cognitive science, you know, thinking and reasoning the core, the good stuff. So, uh, I love that. Uh, but yeah, so tell me about Peter Wason. Tell me what, yeah. What was your initial kind of relationship with, with him? How did that, how, how did that grow? What did you, what did you get from that? What did, what did all that look like? Well, it was, uh, I mentioned, I knew very little about academia and still less, of course, about research. So Peter Wason did research in a way that was extraordinary. In uh, I've never met anybody since uh, who worked in the same way that he did. And I couldn't work in that way. And so I thought, well, I'll get my PhD and I'll have to get out of it. And it wasn't until a, a little while later that I discovered that, in fact, his way of doing research was not the norm. Uh, and there was no need for me to... Uh, necessarily aspire to the way he did research. The way he did research was he wasn't that interested in theory. He was interested in discovering experimental paradigms that were intriguing and raised intellectual puzzles for psychologists. And he had, uh, as Ken Manktelow says in his biography, a, a genius for doing that. I guess the most famous example of this is what is known as the selection task. And uh, in essence, what it is, it was inspired by Popper's idea that science depends on falsification. And he investigated what evidence people would select in order to find out whether a hypothesis was true or false. And this task really set in motion a vast uh, sequence of experiments. There are over 200 published experiments on this task, which is an incredible number in, in when you're dealing with reasoning. So I like Peter very much, and I uh, enjoyed working with him. And he ran a fantastically good uh, graduate seminar, which I can tell you about if you like. So I... He was my the first of several mentors for me, and very important to me in terms of creating my interest in things. And uh, since he wasn't interested in theory, and it turned out that I was, we had a kind of nice complementary uh, relationship. And was that the aspect of his process that didn't work for you? Was the fact that it was entirely empirically focused and not necessarily directed towards creating a larger theoretical structure? I think that's fair. Um, he probably, he would, if he were alive he, and listening to me, he would say, Phil, what nonsense you're speaking. <laughs> uh, because he did attempt to theorize, but he, it wasn't really the, his stock in trade. Uh, he, he and it wasn't so much that he was empirically oriented. It was it was a little more subtle than that. He really wanted to develop these experimental paradigms that were intriguing, and so he developed several of them. I mean, some of them didn't work. He was very interested in how people write. And he thought that some people got inhibited when they saw what they'd written. So he did a study in which you had to write in invisible ink. Um, and that actually didn't lead anywhere. The other thing about him that was very important to me was that he had studied English literature at Oxford. He'd been an undergraduate student of Lord David Cecil. And he really 
helped me to learn to write or to improve my writing. Hey, Cody here. So as I've mentioned on the show before, I am graduating from my PhD program pretty soon here, hopefully in spring 2022. And while that's great, it also means I have to start making plans for my next phase. And ideally, I'd like to do this. I'd like to podcast and write and be able to achieve at least a semblance of what looks like a next career step producing this kind of work. So it is time for me to take the pod from something that merely exists to the next level. And part of what this entails is that I am going to be offering a premium subscription to my podcasts and writing. So one of the questions that I've been asking myself recently is, what have I learned from doing this podcast and how has it affected me personally? And so I am starting a segment called CogRev Redux, in which I listen back to my catalog of episodes starting from my first interview over two years ago, and I edit down the original to a 30-minute show featuring the highlights of what that guest said and, and what really stuck with me over that time, as well as my own reflections on where I was when the interview was conducted, what I was interested in, and how that's all changed. And I will also go into any backstory I have with the guest or strange behind-the-scenes antics that happened during the taping that didn't make the final cut. So I will offer two free CogRev Redux episodes in January. Then from there, they will come out for premium subscribers every other week. With the premium subscription, you also get my series called Reviewed. It's Reviewed in which I revisit, reread, or reconsider the books, movies, podcasts, or other content that has most impacted me throughout the years. In this show, I love to ask people about the books that have most influenced their thinking, and so now I want to explore my own answers to those questions in greater depth. There's also a new series I'm launching called The Grad Student's Guide to Podcasting. It features everything I've learned while doing Cognitive Revolution through my PhD, as well as interviews with other graduate student podcasters. That will be coming out throughout January 2022. Anyway, like I said, this is part of me building out toward my next phase, so I really do appreciate the support. If you are interested in signing up for a subscription, you can check out codycommerce.substack.com. That's codycommerce.substack.com. Even if you just sign up for the free version, it helps a ton to support my future work. Okay, thank you for hearing me out. Now, back to the show. It's really funny that you mentioned the nonsense thing. This is something that I find on this show, you know, because I'm talking to lots of academics who are, you know, have big reputation and everything. And then, you know, you say something to them and you sort of imply like, well, it's like, you know you tend to sort of rely more on the, you know, theory side of things or the the empiricism side of things. And I don't think I've ever had an instance where someone didn't take issue with my characterization of of them or someone, you know, close to them that they care about. Uh, because everyone sort of feels that they're the perfect mix of 
uh, you know, theory and empiricism at some emotional level. Even if it's some intellectual level, they know that that might not be true. I think that there's kind of an intuitive level that everyone thinks that they strike the the kind of balance there. Um, so I'm sure he would take well, issue uh, with, with that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it turns out these days in psychology that it's too easy to think of theories and too hard to get rid of them. And one of the worst thoughts I ever had was thinking that when computers became available to us all, um, it would become de rigueur that you didn't really have a theory, a cognitive theory, that is, unless you had a working computer model of it. And Stuart Sutherland, who was another mentor of mine, ran the Laboratory of Experimental Psychology at Sussex University. And he and various uh, people there actually set up in the undergraduate degree in psychology that everybody learned to program. So I thought this would become absolutely universal. Of course, it hasn't happened, uh, which I think is to the detriment of cognitive psychology and, and cognitive science for that matter. So I, I, I want to go back to what you were I want to ask a question about Wayson's experimental approach and how, and I guess your, your perspective on it. So I guess one thing that I kind of run into with, um, you know, as a graduate student trying to design my own experiments, that sort of stuff and getting mm -hmm. like, you know, feedback on them from my advisors, there's sort of this tension where, you know, I come up with a paradigm that I'm interested in and then you know, maybe th their feedback will be that like, okay, well, this kind of leaves this open-ended uh, and, you know, you could tighten this up and, and sort of increase the internal validity of the study. But then maybe my perspective is like, well, no, I actually kind of think that that reflects the circumstances in which this behavior naturally occurs and therefore gives it a higher level of external validity. And, you know, you kind of have this tension often between whether, you know, um, you know, the, between the internal validity, the sort of experimental rigor of a, of a paradigm and the extent to which it reflects real world circumstances, the natural situations in which this behavior is likely to occur, the external validity. So d do you have a sense of how Wayson would kind of balance these in, in what he was trying to do experimentally? And did you find it to be a, you know, was it a balance you were amenable to, or was it something, was, was, did you sort of take your own perspective on that as you started to develop your experimental and theoretical agenda? That's a tricky question. Uh, I'm, I am kind of asking you to solve all of, uh, you know, empirical psychology in one, I mean, you know, kind of, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, I mean, but yeah, go ahead. Oh, I mean, I agree with you that, that obviously psychological experiments are always to some degree artificial uh, and that they lack, as it were, ecological validity. And there is that tension. And quite where you draw the line, I don't know. Um, so it's a great danger. And I mean, to use the example of the selection task, which I mentioned a moment ago, it became famous because people failed to choose potentially falsifying evidence. 
And so philosophers were horrified by this. And one of them said it just shows that the experimenters are wrong. The experiment is no good. It, I mean, in essence, making the ecological validity critique of it. Um, it turned out, in my view, um, this is arose from work uh, that I did with a, a colleague with whom I still collaborate, a guy called Marco Rani, who's at the University of Chemnitz in Germany. It turned out that, in a sense, there was something uh, misleading about the selection task, and it's this. The participants had just one chance to select from four potential pieces of evidence those bits of evidence that they thought might falsify the hypothesis, and they tended to overlook the key thing. If you did the task repeatedly with them, they soon learned not to make that mistake. But what inspired the great interest in the study was precisely the fact that people appeared to ignore falsifying information. So that task is, a, I think, a good illustration of, of exactly the point that you made, that there's this tension between uh, trying to tap into what happens in real life and what you can study in an experiment. Well, I will do my best to aspire to Wason's standards and the uh, you know same intellectual heft that the selection task has developed over the last fifty years. Of my own PhD experiments. I'll I'll let you know how that comes. But uh, <laughs> so yeah, um, when did you when did you first hear the word cognitive science? When did that kind of come into the picture for you? I don't remember, but I can tell you one thing that I associate with your question, and that is um, George Miller, the psychologist, who was another mentor of mine, drew my attention to uh, some meeting and money that was being given out uh, to do with cognitive, cognitive sciences, they said at first. And this was the Sloan Foundation that had a program on it. I would guess it must have been in the late 70s or around then. Uh, so that's that's certainly something that in, impinged on me. And uh, I used to, uh, I spent a year working with George at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. And we got writing a book and then I would go back uh, for a few weeks each year. And it was during that time that this idea of cognitive sciences first impinged on me. So tell me about your uh, relationship with George Miller. What was he like? He's actually definitely another hero of mine. I, I don't have the copy of it with me right now. It's in, my, uh, it's in the other room, but it's uh, a beautiful copy of his psychology, which... Um, uh, basically alternates between historical renderings of the people he felt to be the most influential psychologists and advances in essentially what came to be, you know, cognitive science as he understood it. And it's a fantastic work of, you know, it's, it's super interesting. The, a lot of the, you know, the historical uh, sketches are sort of based off of uh, one of his mentors, E.G. Boring, who was a great historian of psychology himself. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's a lovely book, and it, it really, it's it's so fascinating. It's such a creative book uh, because so few things were taking those two simultaneous 
you know, perspectives, both the history of psychology and what would become cognitive science, as well as here is the state of the art at that time. So I've always greatly admired George's work as a linchpin of the cognitive evolution and also that work, uh, that specific work in, in particular. Yeah, well, I agree with you. Uh, George um, was somebody who was rather different from Weiss in, in that his interests were, I think, towards the theoretical side of things. Of course, he did experiments. I mean, you couldn't make a career, you perhaps you can now, I don't know, as a theoretical psychologist that doesn't do experiments. I've never really met anybody quite like I suppose you could say Chomsky uh, is an example, but then he passes as a linguist, though I think he's a cognitive scientist, really. So George was very learned, very smart, knew a lot of math, uh, interacted with Chomsky. They wrote three chapters together for the Handbook of Mathematical Psychology. I spent six months as a graduate student reading those chapters. Uh, anyway, I met George in England, and uh, he invited me to, to visit him for a year in uh, Princeton at the Institute, as I mentioned. Uh, he gave me a paper to read, and it was a paper about the meanings of words and how he had examined them, getting people to sort a big pack of cards, each with a word on them, into uh, different packs in order to figure out the semantics of them. And uh, I made some criticism, and then we decided, it's his idea really, that we would see how far you could get analyzing the meanings of words in terms of what was perceptible. And we wrote this uh, book, uh, big book, uh, probably unreadable. Uh, and basically what we concluded was you can get only so far uh, trying to be, a, a, as it were, an empiricist about the meanings of words. Um, so he had a big influence on me. He also was somebody who wrote uh, extraordinarily well. And um, he was not somebody that dished out a lot of advice. Uh, but the sort of thing that would happen uh, in writing the book, I would write a draft chapter and he would say, let me put that through my typewriter. We're still dealing in the age of typewriters. And he would rewrite it and I would see how much better it was when he had rewritten it. Um, and as I say, he uh, extremely stimulating guy to talk to. He was by far and away the sort of person that you should interact with one-on-one. -on -one. He was much less, I don't know whether he lacked comfort, but he was uh, less interesting to me at any rate in groups. So we've kind of, you know, looked at this period through the lens of your, your mentors and what you were getting from them. Uh, and I definitely want to kind of build up to this paper that you delivered at the first, you know, meeting of the Cognitive Science Society on mental models and oh, that was right, 1980. Yeah. Uh, so can you give a sketch of, of how, like, how was your research career going until that point? Did it, was, did it, uh, was everything sort of on track? Were there big successes or failures? Or was it just sort of like, okay, you were kind of building towards this mental model idea? Uh, what, so what, what did all that look like sort of as you were a, mostly a lecturer at 
UCL, but like you said, you know, some other stuff, including well, some time. Yeah, I mean, this is a bit of a probably a bit of a reconstruction, as Bartlett would say. Um, I'd done work with Peter Wason on reasoning, and I'd done work on semantics with George, and I managed to get a grant that would pay my salary while I wrote a book. And um, the idea of the book was to try to bring the two fields together. And the thing that articulated it was the idea that when you understand a sentence, you uh, a descriptive sentence, you build a model of how the world would be if that sentence were true. And so that was the origin of the idea in my mind, of mental models. And then, of course, I found out about the earlier history. Um, so ap apropos my career as a researcher, I was, um, I was you know, reasonably productive. I, I done, published papers with Wason, published the book with George, uh, and uh, I was, you know, I was enjoying it. I mean, the thing I always say, and I can say this to you, and you've already learned the lesson, the, the point about graduate school is to find out two things. This is my view. First, whether you enjoy doing research, and second, whether you're any good at it. After I got my PhD, one of my examiners, in fact, the professor at UCL, George Drew, said to me, now you can do some real research, Phil. <laughs> and at the time, I felt uh, I was shocked and dismayed by this. But now I realize it was a perfectly sensible remark because, you know, the research you do for your PhD, if you go on to continue to do research because you enjoy it and you're reasonably good at it, is not usually that important. Yeah, I resonate with that all too much as a current final year PhD student. Um, yeah, so, okay, so you mentioned this sort of initial thought to you that, well, in order to sort of look at the, in order for people to evaluate the truth content of a sentence, and forgive me if I'm paraphrasing here, they need to have a model of what the world looks like and whether or not that utterance is a uh, an accurate representation of you know what what's reflected in their model so can you do well, the, uh, yeah yeah let me just make one point uh most of the time we're not concerned with checking whether uh, descriptions are accurate or not i mean human beings have the propensity to believe things that you tell them um and most of the time what we want to know is how the world is given this description and sometimes we do want to check whether the description is accurate or not, but I, that's uh, relatively rare, I'd say, in daily life. Uh, uh, you know, I've told you that I'm in Manhattan. Uh, you haven't said, well, you know, is, is that really true? I mean, maybe he's actually in Stoke Poges, for all I know. Um, so uh, other than that, other than that qualification, the, the, the verification of descriptions is a relatively rare business. And the fact that people have a propensity to believe what you tell them. Uh, and as you know, in this country, people believe all sorts of extraordinary things. Um, <laughs> um, fair enough. And uh, but uh, maybe another 
I guess maybe part of what I was trying to say then is that there is a mapping onto this model of the world when you get in a linguistic utterance. You're trying to yes. build whatever information is contained in there, whether or not it is strictly speaking in a metaphysical sense, true or false, you're mapping it onto some sort of model. So how did that, how did that kind of, that basic insight that occurred to you there, how did that sort of become more formalized into what you began to think of in, you know, the idea of mental models and then particularly how you presented it in, in 1980 at that first meeting of the Cognitive Science Society? It's kind of hard for me to remember exactly what I said then in that paper, um, but um, I can tell you the, the, the general idea. In order to test this idea that people build models of descriptions, one obvious way to do it is to look to see whether they draw inferences from models that would be hard to explain if they didn't have models. So this means, for example, you describe the layout of, of uh, dishes and cutlery on a table, and you see whether people can make an inference from it, which they could only make if they'd built a model of the layout. So that's that was a, a, an early step. And then what happened, uh, that worked out pretty well. That is to say, it's consistent with only one general uh, arrangement of the objects on a table, or you can give a description that allows an indeterminacy. So there's uh, various alternatives. Some things, some relations are fixed, but others are not. And the latter causes people difficulty. Um, so then the idea was, well, can we extend this? So the first thing that we extended it to was uh, inferences that Aristotle had studied called syllogisms. And that's the sort of argument that, where you say uh, some of the parents are drivers, all the drivers are musicians, therefore some of the parents are musicians. And it turns out that contrary to Piaget, seven-year-olds can make that sort of inference. And the way in which we think they, or the way we theorized, um, building a computer model, of course, uh, was that they built models of uh, the premises and drew conclusions that held in the models that were not explicitly stated in the premises. So that those were the sort of early developments in the, in the model theory. But it's come quite a long way since then and changed more than once. And as I also mentioned, there are great precursors to the whole idea. And uh, can you say a bit about what those precursors are? Yeah, I mean, the obvious person uh, was Craig, the Scottish psychologist and physiologist in Cambridge who died in about 1943 or 44, a very young age. And he wrote a book called The Nature of Explanation. And he had the idea that people build models. Fortunately, I hadn't read it because I think it probably would have influenced me in a way that would have been deleterious. His view of a model was it didn't matter what the structure of the model was, the thing that mattered is that given a particular input, its output would be uh, similar, if not the same, as to what would happen in the world. Well, you can see at once that the business of the spatial layout of a table 
won't fit his notion of a model. So he was an important precursor. But then there's Wittgenstein's picture theory of language, which is where he says that language has a structure that is a bit like the structure of a picture. This is in the Tractatus. And then you can go back much further. The earliest real precursor to it that I know of is amongst German physicists of the 19th century. And they very much had the idea, as did Einstein. They, uh, they talked about images rather than models. But when you look at what they mean, they really mean models, not two-dimensional images. I can see how, you know, if if one of the main sources was the Tractatus, how you would have overlooked that. Uh, I think for that book, I understood the first sentence and the last sentence, but uh, everything in between was a little bit of a blur for me. So um, I'll, I'll forgive you for that one. But um I'm interested. Uh, do you remember anything about this initial meeting of the the Cog Sci Society? Was there like, do you have any, in particular, any like gossip? You know, do you have any like, oh, well, so oh, the and so. First meeting, the 1980 meeting. Yeah, we went to like, you know, yeah, the, bar, I, the pub I, afterwards. What happened then? Yeah, yeah. I I have several memories. Um, Stuart Sutherland was there. Um, so was Christopher Longit Higgins, another uh, person who uh, had an influence on me. Um, I remember my talk was too short, but there was quite an interesting discussion. Uh, I remember meeting, to my surprise, uh, various people, Marvin Minsky uh, uh, and other such individuals, um, who referred to me as Laird Johnson. I didn't have the guts to tell him, no, it's Johnson Laird. <laughs> you just thought about changing uh, it legally so Minsky wouldn't have to correct himself, you know? <laughs> uh, but uh, Larry Erlbaum, the publisher, was there. There was a, as in most conferences, there were lots of different publishers exhibiting books. And uh, there was a stall there for, uh, you know, Larry Erlbaum books. And I got talking to the guy behind it and thinking that he would be just an employee of the company. And um, to my amazement, it was Erlbaum himself. Uh, so uh, that, that was a, a big surprise. I've never, ever, in any other circumstance, met the, the publisher behind a stand of books at a conference. Uh what else? Uh, the weather was miserable, which was a surprise to me. I thought Southern California would be very nice, but that's about it, huh. I guess. San Diego, 1980. That's, uh, yeah. that's too bad. Uh, anyway, so back to your paper that you did deliver. One of the sort of thrusts of it was the necessity of interdisciplinarity in cognitive science. Yeah. Part of an initial, an initial point that you make is that, well... We kind of have these constituent disciplines. Have we successfully knitted them together? Not really, but that's what cognitive science is going to be when it in fact exists. So I guess I'm, I'm just interested in your take on that sort of looking at that, I guess, you know, 40 years later, uh, in what ways do you suppose we've succeeded or fallen short on the interdisciplinarity front in cognitive science? Yeah, it's kind of hard to be um, to take a proper perspective, to have a proper standpoint to answer that question. But let me just give you my rough intuitions. I don't really think the degree of interdisciplinarity has increased much. Um, I'm of the view that 
academic disciplines are really the invention of administrators, or I used to be of that view, but now I begin to wonder and think you learn a particular discipline in graduate school, and if you go into academia, you continue to practice it. So the failure of cognitive psychologists, not universal failure, but a common failure, is not to build computer models, not to have a theory, as, as the late David Marr would say, of, of, uh, the, of how uh, the algorithm is carried out. Uh, only to have a theory of what is computed, uh, but not how it's computed, which I think is dangerous. Um, certainly people, uh, psycholinguistics certainly brought together psychology and linguistics. Um, the developments in AI, particularly uh, the, the, you know, the developments that have happened in neural nets, uh, have been very striking and completely refute the skeptics who thought that uh, there was no future in AI. Uh, there was a Lighthill report in Britain that basically said that and stopped funding in AI. But in fact, of course, it, you know, it's been extraordinarily successful. But I rather agree with uh, Jeff Hinton, who's one of the leading lights in, in this area and whom I've known ever since he was a graduate student at Sussex University, that um, the standard methods leave something to be desired in AI. I mean, the dangers of uh, autonomous vehicles illustrate that. And they don't. I don't really think that uh, they account for all human learning. I think the human beings can learn in ways that are not captured in current machine learning algorithms. But that's an intuition, and it's one of those questions that is just an. It's just an opinion. Uh, I don't see any way to. Uh, the only way to sh to show there's any bit, anything in that view is to demonstrate a form of learning that uh, cannot be uh, computed using any known current uh, neural network-like uh, machine learning algorithm. So to go back to your question, things have not knitted together as well, perhaps, as one might have liked. Now, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. So you made an, an early point there about basically the relationship between administrative uh, academic departments and the kind of work that gets produced. And I think that's a really important point. Uh, so this is something that I personally have uh, been quite interested in and have studied a lot of the sort of sociology of cognitive science in the Cold War. And one of the crucial things that was happening in early cognitive science was that you had a kind of basically um, it was the last great period of a strong separation between professionalization and uh, scholarship. And so in this period starting 1946, particularly with the GI Bill in, in the United States, uh, you had a tremendous, tremendous amount of money flowing into academia and also a tremendous, tremendous optimism about the ability to bring together big ideas from otherwise disparate disciplines to create mega theories. You know, for example, cognitive science was one of them. Uh, the Department of Social Relations at Harvard, which was in many ways a precursor to cognitive science in my reading of the history, uh, is another example. But these sort of mega theories yes. 
bringing together the, the whole points there. And one of the things that, yeah, go ahead. Let, let me interject. I mean, Harvard, you had Jerry Bruno and George Miller set up the Center for, I forget the precise name, Center for Cognitive Studies, That's which was very much a precursor as well and involved people from different disciplines. And an index of the failure of this to continue is that I don't know of many centers of that sort other than those that bring together neuroscience and cognitive psychology. Absolutely. And I think that that's not just a, that's not just a limitation in perception that you like, you know, for like, you don't know about those things, but that that actually reflects the true reality of it. And part of what's happening here is that in the, the literature on basically, you know, academia and higher education and research productivity and that sort of stuff, uh, this basically three decade period after night starting 1946, was known as, you know, what they say in that literature is the golden era, the golden era. And mm -hmm. uh, basically, uh, it was this, uh, if you look at a lot of the central theories of uh, disciplines across the behavioral sciences, cognitive science, psychology, sociology, anthropology, that sort of stuff, there is this period that was essentially the, um, you know, 1970s, where a lot of the paradigms that were instilled then are, um, you know, still in play today. And basically, uh, the summary of it, it was, it was this sort of confluence of lots of resources, uh, a time when a lot of these disciplines were just becoming uh, formalized in a way that they were no longer sort of like, uh, you know, just sort of kind of ad hoc patches, but they were like, okay, here is all of the specific things that, you know, quote, cognitive science, quote, psychology, quote, sociology is going to entail. Uh, and then uh, starting at, you know, that sort of 1975 period, that's when the sort of modern culture of publish and perish, publish and per publish or perish, academic siloing, uh, and having to really maintain a firm disciplinary identity started to set in and started to make it more difficult uh, to, to have some of these things, which I think reflects yeah. our, the cognitive science that we've seen today. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Uh, let me give you an example. Um, I, my friend Keith Oatley and I, since the mid-80s, have been developing a theory of emotions. And uh, Keith, in particular, has been very interested and in, uh, published on how reading, particularly reading fiction, uh, affects uh, the reader's emotional life and even perhaps their emotional intelligence. And it would be great if there were centers where that sort of work could combine with people who are studying the comprehension of language, natural language processing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But to my knowledge, uh, there's no such center. Um, so I think that there is naturally something about human psychology that wants to stick to what they've learned in graduate school insofar as it affects academia. So if you don't uh, mix disciplines in graduate school, people will go their separate ways. And I do think that it's a pity that the, the work in on neural nets does seem a little bit divorced 
except that people, you know, get an algorithm off the shelf in order to model, say, the effects of brain damage. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it's the fate of people as they grow older to become uh, pessimistic about things. So maybe there's some really exciting developments going on in the halls of MIT or indeed Oxford that at least I'm ignorant of. I can't really speak for the halls of Oxford. I've only been in my flat here for the last two years um, due to the pandemic. So we'll all have to discover that uh, together. But uh, anyway, I do want to ask you a couple questions and let you go about your errands after that. Uh, But the... uh, the main thing is that, so you, you published a recent um, Proceedings National Academy of Science paper on mental models in 2010, I believe, and you continue to do, you know, quite a lot of research on the topic today. So I right. I would I would love to know, how has your mental model of mental models changed over the past 40 or 50 years? Well, it has changed a lot, and the essence of it would be this, that when I started, um, indeed, the first, uh, even in the Mental Models book, I think my view was that logic was a good normative theory of how people reason. I no longer believe that. And what's happened, um, this is more recent stuff in the last 10 years, five years or so, is models represent possibilities. And people make inferences about possibilities. And I'll give you a very simple example. If I tell you, uh, well, uh, it's going to snow later today or tomorrow, or both, uh, you're inclined to say, well, possibly it will snow later today. Okay? That's a perfectly sensible inference. Possibly it will snow later today. No modal logic treats that inference as valid. And there are many modal logics. As a matter of fact, there's a countable infinity of them in principle. None of them, no standard modal logic allows you to infer from A or B or both that A is possible and that B is possible and perhaps both is possible too. So um, what's happened in the model theory is that we really now need a different way of of, uh, treating what is a good inference. We can stick with the standard logical notion of validity, which is that uh, a conclusion is valid if it holds in all the possibilities to which the premises refer. But beyond that, logic doesn't really help us. And indeed, the semantics of awe uh, is not something that is captured in standard logic. So that's a major change, and we're still working out uh, its ramifications and testing them experimentally. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And uh, I guess maybe it's to some degree fair to say that we're rethinking normativity across cognitive science, whether it's, you know, sort of basis is in logic or computation or what. Um yeah, there's, there's, re- I think rethinking uh, across the board and a lot of stuff there. Um, yeah, I think the, I mean, the basis, the basis of computation, the theory of computability that Turing and others developed, does not rely on logic. I mean, that is to say, if you take the theory of recursive functions, 
you have three sorts of function that you have to know, and you have to be able to combine them in three sorts of way. But in no nowhere are built in axioms of logic. And one very simple way of telling that is it's perfectly easy for us to build a computer model that does not obey the rules of logic, uh, that uh, works according to how we think people reason. Um, so logic is important, and, it, and logicians were the pioneers of computability. But the, the functions that they built into the theory of computability, the successor function, the identity function, uh, basically list processing functions, don't embody logic. Uh, they're more, in a way, you could say they're more primitive than that. So final couple questions here. Um, I want to go to your paper, How Jazz Musicians Improvise, which is one of my personal favorite papers. Uh, I wrote my undergraduate thesis on computational models of jazz improvisation inspired by language, trying to tie together, you know, the advances in natural language processing with some of your and, you know, others work on, on jazz improvisation. But anyway, uh, it wasn't. Can you send me a copy of it? Oh, well, it's not. Send me a copy of it? It's not really worth reading, but I, I can send you some All notes right. on it. Um, but okay. um, so it's not necessarily one of your more influential papers, and people didn't really pick up this line of inquiry in any sort of long-standing way. But uh, I'm curious to know what do you think this question, as someone who is you know deep familiarity with both cognitive science and jazz and you know improvisation, what 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 can this t question you know of how jazz musicians improvise tell us about the mind? I think the thing about improvisation that is pertinent to your question is that it's a combination of knowledge that you can articulate and describe verbally. Uh, for example, you know, uh, in the key of C, uh, you know, typically the first chord in a 12-bar blues is C seventh. It doesn't have to be, but it's that. And then, you know, the next measure would probably be F7 and so on. So uh, you can talk about quite a lot of knowledge. You can say, look, if you're playing a chord of, of uh, C seventh, then you can play C sharp, but it's probably going to be a passing note unless you want to make a point of being really dissonant. So there I'm articulating conscious knowledge. But jazz improvisation also depends on a lot of tacit knowledge, knowledge that you cannot articulate, uh, unconscious knowledge in Helmholtz's sense. So it brings together those two things. Uh, a corollary, of course, is if you ask a, a jazz musician, how do you improvise? There's only so much they can say, and most, mostly the most important things they can't really describe, and that's up for theorists to try to figure out. Yeah, no, there's so much to go into on that, but uh, I will uh, let you go after this one last thing, which uh, I think I've prompted you for ahead of time. What are uh, three books that have most influenced you? It's hard. To, I mean, uh, I can tell you authors. I mean, Russell is one I mentioned. So I like very much uh, his problems of philosophy. When I read Chomsky's Syntactic Structures first, uh, that really had a, a, an influence on me. And then I read, as I mentioned to you earlier, the three chapters that Miller and he wrote really about uh, approaches to psycholinguistics. So they were important. Um, then um, I guess the other book that uh, was important when I first read it 
was Plans and the Structure of Behavior, which is by George Miller, Eugene Gallant, and Carl Pribram. A little footnote about that book. I had an uh, undergraduate student who got pregnant and had to go into hospital to give birth just before her final uh, exam. So I went to see her and I took her some books and I included plans and the structure. She had the baby. They were both fine. She was able to do her finals. She did very well. And uh, she came to see me to return the books. And I said, well, what did you think of plans and the structure of behavior? And she said, oh, I thought it was all terribly obvious. And I thought, yeah, that's what's happened. Uh, something that was pioneered, pioneering in 1960, you know, 15 years later, uh, maybe more than 15 years later, has become obvious. But it had a big impact on me when I first read it. Absolutely. Well, uh, Phil, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Uh, it was a huge pleasure and so fascinating to hear so much of the the backstory here. And uh, so thanks for being generous with your time and uh, for, for talking to me today. Well, thanks for having me. That was my conversation with Phil Johnson Laird. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, uh, one of the ones that I recommend you checking out is my previous interview with Alan Badley. Phil actually mentions it in this one. He's another great British progenitor of cognitive science and a, a very eminent researcher. So if you do feel you are getting something from the show, please consider subscribing or giving it a five-star rating on iTunes. Most of all, I'd really appreciate it if you could check out codycommerce.substack.com to subscribe to my newsletter or even sign up for a premium subscription. So thank you for listening, and I'll be back here next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution. Cognitive Revolution.